on the podcast today, we have Alana Sickman. Welcome, Alana. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge I'm producing this podcast in the lands of the Kalehus, Homoko, Komox, and Kalaaman First Nations, who were one nation before we settlers came in and separated them into reserves. So today we're going to be talking, this is uh, this is episode two, um, Hub Series. This is the uh, Humans Understanding Behavior Lab uh, that's headed by Dr. Jordan Belisle, uh, fellow Canadian. Uh, uh, the first episode was with uh, Claire Zook, and we talked a lot about um, um, uh, ableism and, and stigma in autistic in autistic populations. Um, using this uh, relational density theory thing. And uh, today we're gonna be kind of talking about some some other isms in our world um, using this piece. And so uh, we'll get into all that shortly, but maybe before we get started, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. So uh, a little background for myself and how I proceed or uh, proceeded with applied behavior analysis or behavior analysis um, is very common to, I think, everybody. We just stumbled upon it. Um, so I was um, doing my undergraduate at Missouri State University, uh, pursuing psychology with um, some various coursework's in clinical work, um, therapeutic services, and things like that. But I, I continued to hit this roadblock of not being able to understand where um, things were coming from or why people were behaving in certain ways um, or maybe not getting better um, and progressing in their psychological well-being, even though psychology as a field has been around for a really long time. And then um, I had a class with Dr. Dana Palalunas, um, who has been a huge um, supporter of relational density theory and done her own work in that, right? But she was the one who kind of sparked this um, interest in behavior analysis for me in her class um, and asked me to apply to be in her undergraduate research lab. At that time, it was an undergraduate research lab because she was just getting started herself um, as a professor. And so that's kind of where I started to develop my interest in hopefully addressing psychological well-being from a different perspective. So as opposed to treating symptoms or getting interested in those various aspects. I was more interested in how can I progress somebody forward in their overall well-being by addressing their behavior. So that's kind of what we did. I built the um, like experimental side of myself in that lab by doing literature reviews, understanding experimentation, and uh, lab work with uh, college students. And then in my master's, um, I was still at Missouri State University working a little bit closer with Dr. Jordan Belial, who is, um, of course, the um, person who created or founded relational density theory that we'll talk about. And um, yeah, so that's where I started to hone in on what types of things are impacting us um, as a society. And that's where I started to find interest in gender stereotyping, racial discrimination, classism, um, those kinds of things that lead to psychological suffering, um, both on an individual level, group level, and systemic level. So um, that's my research side, um, I guess, or school or academic. Right now, I'm pursuing a PhD a second year at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, 
Um, I am being mentored by Dr. Rocco Catroni, which I know that you had an episode with. Um, so he is a phenomenal researcher, advocate, friend, um, all of the things. Um, so I work in his blend lab. It's a doctoral lab that starts to apply um, some of the things that we'll talk about today using either ACT or stigma reduction um, processes and things like that. Um, and then also um, a kind of new development that Ben, I wanted to share with you is that um, Dana, Dr. Dana Palunas and Jordan um, are uh, started this institution um, of kind of combining the labs that I just shared with you. Mm. Um, so very cool stuff coming out of that. There's um let me see, there's students that are an undergraduate, doctoral students, as well as master's students from all over the world, actually. Um, so it's not just based at Missouri State University anymore, which I know at the time of Claire's interview it was, but we have um, collaborators from Canada, Brazil, Ireland, wow. Australia. Yeah, a lot of really cool um, science coming out of there, um, trying to work with ACT and um uh, relational frame theory, relational density theory, application, experimentation, and those kinds of things. Um, that is really, really cool. So what's, and what's this new Institute? Does it, does it have a name yet or? Uh, yeah. So it's called the Institute for Dynamic Behavior Science. Um, so we kind of took the names that we had previously with, uh, Dana's lab being called lab lab mm. language, um, and behavior and hub lab, um, humans understanding behavior, which is Jordan's lab previously, and combined the two. So now within those spaces, there are different labs um, where we will do, you know, experimental analyses and conceptual analyses and things like that. And then there are different hubs um, of interest. So um, the social issues, for example, um, application um, and things like that. So a lot of really great stuff coming out of that. And we're just starting to do that now. So uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, no, I can't wait to hear what's what's coming out of there. I mean, and yeah. uh, working with Rocco. Rocco's a superstar. Shout out to Rocco. So that's super yeah. awesome. It seems to be a theme here, and I, I think Claire kind of had had a similar story with 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 uh, folks going to Missouri State University and and just not having any idea what they're going to do, and suddenly ending up in Jordan's lab doing you know this, this doing these these you know really really cool sort of um advanced kind of areas so you, you didn't so you didn't come to missouri state looking for jordan and looking for his lab or looking for dr p this was just all kind of fell in your lap yeah absolutely it did um i did not want to go to missouri state that was actually one of my last picks um wow. and so i actually had a very unique experience of going to missouri state the same time that both Dana and Jordan began teaching. So the mm. same year they did that, the same year I started. Um, and so we, um, obviously them more so than I, but built the the lab structures mm. kind of from the beginning and, and navigated that together. So I think that I have a kind of unique experience in working through that in both labs, mm. both an undergraduate um, master's level and now pursuing that with a PhD level work. So it is very interesting how I ended up there, but I definitely am thankful for it. And so what, uh, just, so are you from Missouri then? I am originally from Kansas city. Gotcha. And so what, uh, what, what are you doing when you're not doing 
doing all this kind of stuff? What's what's the rest of your life like? The research stuff? Yeah. So um, I work right now um, full time for a phenomenal company in the greater Chicagoland area. Mm. Um, it's kind of this collaborative space where we work with uh, various diagnoses. So um, yes, developmental disabilities and autism and, and things like that, but also mood disorders, anxiety disorders, age-related issues like dementia. Um, and so that's what I do, I guess, for, for a workspace. And what's that place called? Uh, Lifespeed Behavioral Support. Okay, cool. They're a fairly new company, so. Yeah, yeah. But uh, a good one, nonetheless. Nice, nice. And then sort of outside of your, your, what, what's your, what's your, your, your sort of fun life? What do, what do you do when you're not doing behavior analysis? Are you, are you, yeah. are you like a super nerd like Jordan and you're still doing behavior analysis? I think a little <laughs> bit of both, um, kind of just to reference the super nerd. I just went on a, a really lovely vacation um, and got to uh, travel actually in Canada a little bit and Alaska. Hmm and went on some hikes and uh, just spent time in nature. So I definitely think that that's what I'll do. Um, given the opportunity is just be outside um, nice. all the time, anytime. Um, but I did take that opportunity to, to write a paper. So <laughs> I think a little bit of both. It was nice to get away, but also within that, I, I enjoy having the space to, to write and, and be creative in yeah. that. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is blend. Right on, right on. So I'm, I'm definitely starting to get a bit of a grasp on kind of from, from, from my interview with Claire on kind of how this RDC stuff can be really sort of you know, life changing and and world changing, and and I've I've said to her, and I think I said to others in the past, that I, you know, I, I've struggled with, um, you know, this uh, concept of saving the world with with behavior analysis. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, I just think it sounds a bit uh, well, it sounds a bit cocky, um, yeah. and uh, you know, and and also I think feeds into, you know, our. That overall issue in our field of being kind of insular and not really working well with others, um, and 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 uh, Jordan touches on that actually as well. In in uh, I was saying to you before we hit record that um, whenever I have a uh, when I do these these interviews on RDT, I I go back and listen listen into and I'll put them in the show notes the the interviews that uh, Ryan O'Donnell did with uh, Jordan. I think maybe a few years back. Um, um on both rft and rdt and and uh you know he talks a lot about kind of how um you know our own sort of just he kind of talks about how insular we are as well um and uh and, and about how you know for example with rft and rdt there are some you know, folks in our field that don't think this is behavior analysis and, and they've, you know, and, and some have gone so far as to write papers on it and then others have, and then I think Jordan and others have written papers back and there's been sort of, um, you know, um, 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 you know, there's, there's a bit of a divisiveness here about some folks just want to be, you know, kind of stay in, you know, sort of the traditional sort of land of ABA and others are, are kind of looking to, to kind of expand out. But what, 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 one thing I kind of got out of my interview with Claire is I think, you know, this might be the one 
arm of behavior analysis that might actually be able to contribute to saving some aspects of the world. And I think that's kind of a lot of what your work and her work and Lauren's work, uh, uh, Lauren Hutchinson, who I'll be having on as well to talk about her her climate paper, um, um, is actually really looking at really big um big issues that are that are kind of you know worldwide issues and these are the kind of these isms of the world as it were um so i i do i do have some hope but i, I do think for my listeners um if you haven't listened to the episode with claire that might be a good sort of um uh um, intro to some of this stuff or uh but but i'm hoping we can kind of cover some of that introductory stuff again so folks kind of understand what this stuff's all about because it can get pretty technical and pretty jargony um and it can really it can probably turn some folks off and and the and and we really want to you know i think we want some of the the the, you know some other folks in the world to kind of understand this stuff but also maybe there might be some young you know young folks out there students undergrads and whatnot that are you know maybe I've, I've definitely heard from from a lot of folks in the field that, you know, especially young folks are, are are leaving the field. Some some before they even you know before they even get right into it because of you know different problems that they could sort of see. And and I feel like maybe this is a, a realm where, you know, that that might be able to sort of um, you know take those folks in. I guess. Um, so I wonder if we could just sort of try to talk about what these theories are first of all um and then talk about kind of um um uh, some of the studies you did so i'm not even sure and this is where i'm, I'm going to need your help because i'm not even sure what the right question is um like I'm, I'm not sure if i should be asking you kind of maybe to describe rdt but maybe you need to describe rft first it sounds like maybe because it's sort of based on that um and so rft is relational frame theory so maybe we start there and 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 then and then you can sort of talk about how or kind of any way you want how, how would you explain rdt to someone who's maybe not in the field yeah definitely um a kind of hard question or a difficult question, but one that um, I think is hopefully approachable by the way that I am planning to explain it. But I do want to touch base on, um, you did say that it might not seem like behavior analysis necessarily, or maybe it's getting some pushback and things Mm -hmm. like that. I totally agree with you. Um, I do think though, at the core of it, um, we are all humans existing in Mm -hmm. this world um, with language being the core of what makes us unique um, and like what separates us from other organisms. So I think that regardless of those pushbacks, we can all agree that there is language and symbolism and, and those kinds of things are what is guiding the way that we respond to things, whether those things be um, racial stereotypes or gender stereotypes that we'll talk about or things like that, or somebody wearing a shirt with um, maybe Adidas on it versus a Walmart brand or mm. something even beyond that, all of those things coming back to the core for what I think at least um, being language mm. and like socially contrived situations that have put people either um, maybe ahead of the game or uh, I, I guess at the top of the, the list, if you will, mm. uh, whereas others are disadvantaged because of those narratives or social stories that we're creating. So I think that mm. that's where relational frame theory and relational density theory and beyond to that even um, kind of comes into play. So I think starting with relational frame theory makes sense mm. um, as being like that language and cognitive um, type of approach 
Um, so for those who maybe are not familiar, that is contrived of mutual entailment, combinatorial entailment, and transformation. Um, uh, transformation of stimulus function, excuse me. So what that basically means is that um, with the direct training of one stimulus in one direction, so like A is the same as B, we can then derive that B is then equal to A um, without any direct training. And then we do combinatorial entailment, um, which then adds another layer to that with multiple stimulus relations uh, being directly trained um, and untrained relations then emerge um, with that same shared relation. So A is the same as B, B is the same as C, therefore um, A and C are the same. And I do have an example of this hmm. within gender contexts um, in just a moment. So stay with me. But awesome. um, <laughs> transformation of stimulus function then, um, as I think where relational density theory kind of skyrockets, um, which is where we begin to relate to those stimuli um, in a way that that relational class becomes so complex that it develops um, new behaviors and relational learning and history and, and all those kinds of things that then are transferred, hence transformation of stimulus function, to a person. So um, in the context of gender stereotyping, um, those um, different entailments I can talk about a little bit more. Um, it can start with physical attributes, for example. So um, socially, we know or we might think that somebody who has a beard, A, um, is categorized as male or being a man or masculine, mm. uh, B. And then the similar can then be done with somebody with maybe long hair being presented and categorized as woman, A mm. is equal to B. Um, and then through social um, and cultural conditioning, uh, specifically in this example, along the gender binary, not to say that that is the only truth, but in this mm -hmm. example it is, um, we can then say that B or man is stronger or better for leadership um, than the opposite. So C, while woman is more sentimental, emotional, they're made to stay home, for example, and take care of the children and things like that. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of where that comes in. And then combinatorial entailment would then um, kind of be an example of, or I guess I just said that A is equal to C. <laughs> so excuse me. And then um, we assume these biases based off of that. Now, men and women are considered opposite. They're acting in opposition of each other because of that combinatorial entailment. And then transformation of stimulus function, again, what I think is the, the vital key here is now there's mistreatment of one over the other because of that language that we've started to develop around this person who has a beard as a man, and therefore, man is better for leadership based on these social narratives um, and the opposite for women. And now we start to show that as a society, either in micro or macro aggressions, we start to set up systems that then disadvantage women um, based off of those um, maybe stereotypes that started to show up. Um, and so within relational frame theory, as of that current example, those are um, three separate components that I talked about the, um, I guess, the entailment of all of those, of those complex stereotypes. But then relational density theory, um, you know, notices that stereotyping isms, micro and macro systems and things like that go beyond just that three member 
three to four member relational class. Um, it goes beyond that. As we know, people are existing every day, um, being told um, that they have to wear their hair a certain way or that it's more professional for women to wear makeup, for example, to work um, or maternity leave versus paternity leave, those kinds of things that our society has kind of set up that maybe at the, the time of relational frame theory being um, researched and, and created didn't necessarily have the tools to account for those things in that broader sense. So relational density theory um, is kind of what I think put that puts that into perspective a little bit more. Um, so what I mean by that is that it allows for more relational framing. It goes beyond a three to four member class um, and starts to talk about how those classes then cluster or form um, around anything. So for this example, gender stereotyping. So for example, you can see that um, there's different relatedness between man and woman and um, those like stereotypes, I guess. Um, and then the degree of relatedness. What was I saying? The degree of relatedness then um, is used to um, either predict how those interactions occur or what the given environmental context um, might do to set up those relational events, essentially. Uh, so the way that I think about it, relational density theory, hopefully this makes it a little bit more approachable, and I'll talk about the studies that we've done as well, and hopefully that helps too, but um, is have you ever seen those like expandable balls, those ones that get really large and really small? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always think about relational density theory in that way. There's a lot of different points of contact where the ball meets one another, mm. um, a lot of crisscrossing and a lot of those kinds of things. So I always explain relational density theory in that way, um, just because I think it's a little easier to digest. If you are expanding that ball to its largest capacity, there's a lot of gaps um, in between those points of contact. Um, it's a little bit more flexible when it moves um, and things like that. Things can you can insert things into the ball like a straw or whatever mm -hmm. it is so relational density theory um, acts a lot in that way um those frames those relational frames that are broader and, and more flexible and open and dispersed are easier to then disrupt so something like relation um something like gender stereotyping is probably not one of those things that acts in such um like broad spaces, I guess, within hmm. the ball would not be open necessarily. Right. We acknowledge that we've acknowledged that among a lot of different things like racism, classism, um, those kinds of like perspectives are just hard to shift. They're hard to insert um, therapeutic styles. They're hard to insert educational approaches anything those are they're just not going to shift so what i mean by that is the ball for gender and race and all of those things that uh, ableism and things like that that ball would look like the not expanded version of that i can't stick anything in there the the clusters are very close to one another the relations are very close to one another um and i'm unable to um disrupt those uh, of course, we're working on how we can disrupt those, but it takes a lot more to be able to do that with topics like that. Okay. Um, let me think for a second. So I think there's still some, I think, and, 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 and this is just because my brain, you know, I, I'm still 
and for folks that don't see the video, I, I'm still only on like page three of Nicholas Turnicky's Learning RFT book. So um, um, I'm, uh, I'm I'm a super novice here. So kind of going back to the RFT part a bit. What what is first off? There's a couple of terms in there. Like I I, I mean this entailment multi entailment and combinatorial entailment essentially this is just like you know a equals b and b equals c therefore a equals c kind of stuff right is is what we're talking about here and and uh for whatever reason we decided that um those big multi-syllable words would be good 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 good, uh, good labels to describe that thing but that's essentially what we're talking about and, and folks folks in behavior analysis can go back to like the sidman stuff around stimulus equivalence and probably get some 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 more familiar words like symmetry and whatnot yes. um that uh that maybe can kind of help them make those connections um um you know um i think there i think there's even some um some math stuff there that you could probably look into as well so you talk about transformation of stimulus function but maybe go back just for folks that maybe aren't in aba and and, and talk about what stimulus function even is first yeah, um, that is a very good question. I think that the easiest potential way to describe that is how, in in terms of relational frame theory, how mm. is one stimulus or um, related to others in terms of their features? So it could be like a physical feature um, or an attribute. It can be a characteristic. It can be your own personal history with interacting with um different people that changes then the way you respond in other contexts. So say mm -hmm. that I had a really bad interaction with, um, I don't know, the guy at the sandwich shop, I guess. Sure. Um, and he had long hair and he wore it in a ponytail, but he used he, him pronouns. I don't know. I'm just, mm, you know, gotcha. yeah. So when the man bun was really popular, for example, and I had a really bad interaction with that, um, then transformation of stimulus function, that interaction in itself might change the way I perceive other people either with man buns or that work mm. at sandwich shops, or I start to like associate things like that and add it or apply it to them at a group level. Um, and now anybody who has similar features to that um, is now at fault. In my understanding, I've now transferred mm. that um, concept to meet larger groups. And while that's kind of a silly example, because it's a man bun in a sandwich shop, that mm. obviously becomes very real when that's um, somebody's race, ethnicity, identity um, broadly, and all of the interaction or um, intersections that make people people. And again, that um, is shown with a lot of um, work that we're doing in the labs and we're trying to uncover maybe what that means. Gotcha. Uh, you also talk about, so you kind of talk about, we got the ABC thing and, and, yeah. and with the ABC, that's what you mean by three members. Yes. Right. And so, um, you know, and then there could be a fourth. Why do we have to move to sort of a new theory when we add more members? Like what? What? Why is? Why do we need RDT to think about what happens if there's an A, B, C, D, E, and F? Right. Yeah. Um, so relational density theory, I think, expands beyond that um, in terms of its like higher order um, interactions and relational mm. behavior. 
within relational behavior, at least. Um, And it starts to add these almost like critical elements that, yes, we kind of know in the back of our head, but it hasn't really been scientifically addressed in this way or with Mm. this approach just yet. Um, And it starts to break up maybe some of those components that are a little bit more complex. Um, So relational density, for example, being the strength of the relationship between those relational class members, um, kind of what I was talking about with mm. we're not able to insert ourselves. If it's too dense, um, it's more difficult, um, which is hopefully what can guide us into applications to address some of these things. Um, and then relational volume being the size of the relational class. Again, the, the I'm expanding the ball all the way out or I'm kind of bringing it back together. Um, and then mass being the... Um, the density and the volume and how that predicts that resistance to change. So that kind of the combination of, if you want to think of it that way. And then there's a a few other like components of relational density theory that I think makes sense when addressing Mm. um, these larger social issues like coherence and non-coherence. You'll see that those words, Mm. um, couple papers, Um, coherence kind of being, I'm going to tell you a story or a narrative that, already makes sense to you either based on your social history Mm. um, or something like that that's kind of just going to let you ride the wave of maybe bias and discrimination Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and overt behaviors that lead people to either you know being advantaged or disadvantaged whereas incoherence where we try and disrupt that narrative by um and you'll see this in the gender paper if you have an opportunity to read it but um i know you have been but the rest of everyone um has the opportunity to read it where incoherence is that like switch that switch or that swap of information that doesn't make sense maybe to somebody so um for example if i were to tell you that um, a man is is sitting on the couch and watching Hallmark movies and and crying with a mm. teddy bear eating chocolate. That really like almost ridiculous example of what maybe society sometimes thinks women do. Mm. Um, that would be incoherent. Yes. Um, and so that's a really big part of relational density theory that I think is is really important that RFT doesn't necessarily account for it. Um, and then there's a couple other components that I think overcomplexify this talk and i'm happy to try and go into those no but... no that's okay that's okay there's a lot yeah. of terms here and uh and hopefully there, there's a document that you share with me that hopefully yes. uh jordan will, will be will be cool with us sharing with everybody else that might help kind of tease apart some of this stuff um so i think and i think this is why i mean I struggle with this area because, I mean, you're simplifying things and it's still a bit complex for my brain. Um, and uh, so maybe what we need to do is, I, 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 but, I, but I do find when folks get into the examples and sort of the, the real world application, you know, it, it's easier to kind of connect these things. It's kind of hard to talk about this stuff um, with sort of random examples. Um, so let, let, let's, let, let's, let's, so you're, you're using, you you did studies you you and sort of your 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 lab and, and folks did studies related to um a lot of isms uh there's a racism classism um i feel like maybe maybe sexism is kind of that one for for sort of gender stereotypes lauren's done stuff kind of around around climate um and uh and there's been some other other things as well so 
uh, which 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 study is sort of the, the first one that, that maybe maybe to start talking about and, and then kind of build on the next one yeah um the gender study that i did and i call it the gender study just for my own brain but yeah. um, that is the first translational research study actually with relational density theory um and that was um the one that i was kind of my baby it was my fostering okay. um <laughs> all of that so so let, let, let's let's talk about let's talk about that paper before we talk about that paper let's talk about what why did you decide to do this paper why did you decide to start with gender yeah um i think to be honest i was intimidated by the other others and even though i might have more either personal relationships and identities within other sorts of isms mm. um or i'm interested in other isms um, that I, I don't fall within. I don't have that lived experience. And so I was intimidated to maybe start with the other ones mm -hmm, to be quite honest mm -hmm. with you. And I want to be transparent about that. And I thought that gender, um, as being some, something that's almost the forefront of what people see, um, there's a lot of like research almost backing, um, that a, a baby or an infant can start to decipher between, um, male and female, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm at such a young age. And so I thought that that would be kind of a, a good one to start with, given that maybe there is not as much complexity uh, and not to discount, obviously, experiences um, within sexism, but to to do that approach first made sense. Um, that way I could build upon that um, with the intersectionalities of then uh, race and, and disability and social, social economic status and all of those other things that, again, start to make a person a person. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe at the forefront, gender kind of started that for me. Or I well, guess that's well, one as well. Like, I mean, like you said, it's, it's, it's something that you probably have some, some experience with. Whereas yeah. you might not have experience with racism and, um, um, you know, you know I, I, I have no idea, but you may, maybe you don't have as much experience with classism either, you know, because of, you know, the, okay. your, your, the privilege or the opportunity you've had and so on and so forth. But um, exactly. uh, just, just, uh, just being you, you're going to, I think, I think, I think really all of us experience gender, sexism, stereotypes, whether they bother us or not, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so me as a man might get stereotypes that don't bother me. Like I might be quite fine with being, you know, the truck driver, baseball, baseball player, uh, you know, rough and tumble sort of persona. And, uh, and that's fine with me, but I'm still affected by it because, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it shapes who I am and, and maybe not for the best. Um, so, so what, 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 what were you, what were you, what question were you trying to answer with RDT and, and sort of, uh, sexism and gender stereotypes? Yeah. So given that this was the first, uh, translational study using relational density theory, uh, we first wanted to just see if the, uh, theory would even be able to be interpreted using something like, uh, gender stereotyping, Okay. Uh, so that was our first thing. Does can we use RDT to model something like this mm. uh, broadly? And then beyond that, um, all of those components that I kind of talked about with coherence and incoherence and and those kinds of things, um, and and trying to just 
take from what we know from the social psychologists and all of the uh, critical theories. And what I mean by that is like critical race theory, feminist theories, um, a lot of feminist theories, um, queer studies and things like that. And using um, the idea that narrative um, is a huge part of why people start to respond the way that they do to um, certain people among across certain contexts. Um, and so we just wanted to see if we could create disruption in that, if we could create um, a strong enough um, relational network or class um, um, around gender using that kind of narrative approach. Gotcha. So initially with RDT, you're just sort of trying to show what's happening exactly and then and then sort of next phases would be is there anything we can do about it now that we're able to show what's happening um uh, and so what what did that what did this study look like what'd you do yeah so we had 106 participants which i was so excited about this is the first paper that i am the first author on i was a master's student when i um kind of thought and developed this um Mm. a lot side with some other cool researchers but um so to have 106 participants first of all was just really cool Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe a limitation in this um setting was the fact that all of those participants came from a midwestern um american university Mm -hmm. specifically in springfield missouri which if any of you know anything about springfield missouri you would understand why that might be a limitation They probably already have some preconceived um, perspectives, for example, um, that we did account for. Mm. Um, And this was a fully online study. um, So pretty accessible, um, hopefully accessible to people that wanted to participate in understanding this or getting information about it. Um, But there were four different phases in the study. Um, And relational density theory research uses um, something called a multidimensional scaling procedure um, to um, I guess, gain the perspectives or the rankings of um, or between certain stimuli. Um, and so that's what we did. So we we presented them a series of words. Um, there was 256 questions with 16 by 16 combinations. So for example, um, I would present on a sliding scale, the words adventurous and tough, for example, both being perceived as maybe those like masculine presenting words. Mm-hmm. Um, And then would ask the participant to rank those words on a scale from one, one being not related or no relationship, and then 10 being this is a very strong relationship. Um, So you can imagine that maybe um, those words would be at the higher rating, maybe seven, eight. Um, There's prudish and handsome being related. So you might rate those lower. Um, That's a um, in this context, um, a traditionally female stereotype versus a stereotype of a male and those kind of act in opposition. So that's going to be a little bit lower emotional and fussy stereotypes for women, both being negative stereotypes for women, potentially um, rating again higher. So we got those words and those adjectives from a previous study um, from William and Bennett in 1975. Um, you can tell. And, yeah. Exactly. But I think that that's telling in its own right is that how in the world did we use these words from a 1975 article that found these as being like really um, large, I guess, were or not large, but like impactful words within stereotyping. Um, Mm. 
specifically on gender. And then now you're seeing in this study and the results of this study that that still is the case. And those words are still relevant to describing people um, both before and after um, the middle part of our um, study, which were those scenarios that I was talking about. So phase two was non-gendered scenarios and phase three was um, those gendered scenarios. So what I mean by that is those non-gendered scenarios started to introduce um, people like Jub-Jub, uh, Blip-Blap, Cub-Cub, or, you know, these like really kind of random names. There was four of them. Um, and started to create a narrative that was an over-exaggerated version of uh, male or female, or the mix of both. Um, again, those incoherents. Um, and in the non-gendered scenarios, we use pronouns like they and them mm. um, to describe these these people, these arbitrary people. Um, and so that's kind of what we did in phase two. Um, and then phase three, all we did to those scenarios um, or stories was add a gender. So the the presentation of them were not different. Mm. Um, we told the participants were different. Um, we just added he, him pronouns and she, her pronouns to those scenarios. So, so in phase three, so just go back to like jib jab and flip flap and flip flop. Those names <laughs> were just sort of picked so people wouldn't, because they wouldn't be associated with gen, pre-associated with gender sort of thing. Exactly. And so, and so then in phase three, you now knew that clip clap had a he pronoun or Correct. a she pronoun. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. And there were two groups in phase three. Um, I forgot to mention that. So mm. the first group was given that um, coherent scenario again, um, where she and her was associated with the, um, scenario that sounded like what I told you earlier, sure. the eating chocolate and right. crying over a pillow and, and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, whereas the second group was given those incoherent um, scenarios. So mm. um, we just swapped those. The person who's going skydiving and getting into bar fights has she, her pronouns. The I person see. who's um, crying over a Hallmark movie has he, him pronouns. And we wanted to see um, how that manipulation, I guess, at least in this context, um, would change, if anything, at that point, um, the way people were then perceived, or those people, Jub Jub and Kip Cub and whatever else we used. Um, yeah. How was, and I know, I mean, this, I know this is all like the first study and, and, you know, I think some of this stuff will, it can, will be worked out as you go along, but like, uh, how how is it determined that something is coherent or incoherent? Yeah, so that's where we we pulled a lot from just previous research in both social psychologies and. Um, well, that's where those theories kind of came into play. Exactly. Uh, gotcha, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. so we just looked at previous research and and tried to find uh, lists and and stimuli lists and all those kinds of things and and for other research using relational density theory, we did the same thing hmm. um, with more IRAP um and what is that inter uh, no. implicit relational, yeah implicit relational something rap yeah association so, i think procedure yeah, or something like that exactly. yeah yeah and then iat studies that it, same thing but uh yeah yeah different approach so then we started to develop that and of course like you said we are still trying to find what would be the most useful when we determine that Okay, so you did the three phases, and what what would you learn? Yeah, 
And then, well, and the fourth oh, phase. Well, the fourth phase, yeah. Yes. So the you, the part in the beginning was that MDS scale, that multidimensional scaling procedure where they ranked them. And then the last phase was the same thing. So before our intention of the mm. scale was just a, a pre-test. What's your baseline? Do you Got already it. have biases um, based on these words? Mm-hmm. Uh, then they went through the scenarios process. And then we'll be to the same multidimensional scale to see if those shifted at all, um, given uh, the. I see. Okay. Okay. I got it now. Yes. So then what we did is, um, I'm sure as you can imagine, found that bias exists along the, the binary um, in both pre and post test. Um, hmm. So if you're looking um, maybe at the paper or some of the resources, um, you'll see this, this graph of like clusters or um words kind of coming together yeah that is what we're calling a geospace okay um, like a geometric or a geospatial analysis um which sounds much more complex than maybe it is but essentially what that's doing is taking those responses from the participants and um creating relational networks and classes um along a couple different dimensions mm. um, and I just want to make a note that those dimensions aren't necessary to always label. Um, so similar to the ball example with relational density theory, mm. um, you can move that around. So whether that ball is expanded or I guess enclosed, you can shift it in any direction and the dimensions or where those relationships fall are all going to be in the same space because what you're looking at is more of how close together are those relationships, like mm. thick fussy or maybe closer um whereas fickle and handsome are are farther apart so you're more so looking at those relations versus where they actually fall mm. um, in terms of their cluster and the dimensions themselves uh we did label in this case um by function so you can see that um on one side um of that geospace there are all of the feminine words yep um to the left i believe and then to the right are the male i believe they might be around yeah yes Um, and then on the top there's those more approach type functions so that dimension of approach i want to i like this is a better um feeling and there's more like uh the pretty and those kinds of oh i see i see Uh, sentimental and and those almost like uh, more positively framed words and then on the bottom you're seeing the more negatively framed words i think for Um, just for anyone watching the video i'm just gonna throw this up here for a second um and uh and then they they can kind of see what you're talking about this is the one you're talking about right yes that's exactly what i'm talking about yeah 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 um yes so to the left being handsome adventurous all of mm-hmm. those things clustering together in kind of their own relational class um and then at the bottom those negative words associated with male potentially mm-hmm. forceful aggressive and those kinds of things and then same thing happening on the the flip side for female affectionate sentimental feminine all clustering together and then those negative um but then again those acting in opposition Mm -hmm, totally mm -hmm. right now um and so that um was used in or that was the responses before um those scenarios and the responses afterwards um are very similar um if not more um clustered i guess so you can see there's a little bit of spacing here Mm -hmm. um relate those things but maybe it's not so strong Mm. um after those scenarios were provided 
you can see that shift in that ball then coming together right 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 together right and being more uh difficult to disrupt um and then um that actually brings me to um a good point we actually also looked at um i guess the change in responding mm-hmm. by the participants um like given the adjective and given the then descriptor of male or female. So after we did that, um, we noticed that in every context, if I told you that um, the person who was uh, crying and watching Hallmark movies was female, your ball maybe started out like this, like, okay, these words kind of relate to one another, but not anymore. Like now, or not anymore. Like that's not what I meant to say. But now it's more. No, it's tight. Now, now you you now, can't you can't break that. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I, I told you she's also a female, and you're like, oh, duh. Now mm. I really feel that way. Mm. Um, and same being the opposite with male. And then those incoherence, um, they kind of just stayed the same. They did change a little bit um, because the scenarios were kind of uh, divided and she's getting into a bar fight and she's at home watching a Hallmark video. Mm, mm, But yeah. So I'm I'm guessing, you know, that, so we've got a, we've got a study on racism. We've got a study on sort of sexism. We've got a study on classism. I'm guessing they all kind of worked similarly in that you basically showed that, you know, for, for racism, there was probably terms that are you know associated with black folks um you know um versus terms that are associated with white folks you know and um and racist terms for the most part you know sort of your racist sort of biases so for for black folks you know it might be you know uh, dangerous or 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 you know or or poor or you know uneducated those kinds of things and for white folks it would be you know more educated the opposite terms you know for example and then for like classism you know it, it might have been you know um you know i don't know what, i don't even know what classes are these days but you know middle class folks you know having you know kind of more you know have having have you know the 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 car and the picket fence and the and you know sort of all those things associated with being middle class and and people that and but then also being smarter and you know, happier and healthier and all those sorts of things and and poor people not being and, and, and so on and really rich people being, you know, elitist evil people and and kind of kind of kind of kind of that picture. I, I clearly don't know a lot about classes and period because I, I struggled to come up with examples for that one. But so did all three studies basically kind of do that in the end, kind of give you this sort of geospace picture of uh of those of, of the associations that you predicted probably would be there because i mean it doesn't sound like you're you're talking about things we don't already know you're exactly. just you're just the studies are just sort of uh initially i guess just showing that sort of uh visual you know sort of display of uh of how these are all interconnected is that is that basically what the three yeah. studies are we're doing that's it exactly The second secret word is world. Exactly right. Yeah. So those um, dimensions, again, changing based off of the uh, study itself and also the approach in which we determined those. So Mm. for the racism study, for example, we actually used pictures as well as 
like good and bad stimuli, like you said, dangerous versus safe, mm. those adjectives, and um, also some names, um, some maybe stereotypical names associated with that as well. Mm. Yes, saw that same divide in that context, of course, um, with white and black um, individuals, and then the positive and negative stereotypes associated with those. And mm. um, you'll be able to see that as well with those clusters kind of being acting in opposition right. to one another on both spectrums um, set up just a little bit differently. And then um, with the classism study, the approach in finding that was a little bit different, um, same multidimensional scaling procedure as the others. Um, that's kind of universal across relational density theory studies at this point. Um, but we did a SPOP um, I cannot remember the the actual name for that, but mm. essentially um, the same kind of narrative approach. We just mm -hmm. didn't do the coherence or incoherence. We provided them like picture, uh, a photo of a raggedy hold uh, shirt that's dirty mm -hmm. and then a symbol um, that was arbitrary in nature. And we paired those two together for about oh, I can't remember, maybe five minutes or so. Mm. Uh, participants watched that pairing of those stimuli. And then we're asked to do the multidimensional scaling procedure because the point of that study was to um, look at class and classist views um, based on symbolicness. Again, that example mm. I gave earlier with somebody who's wearing uh, like coach as opposed to um, maybe like a Walmart brand and how those symbols at, at one point meant nothing. Mm -hmm. um, we probably still don't mean a whole lot, but mm -hmm. so we have um, determined that that means that you have more money and, yep. and that you can watch my kids now, or you can um, make decisions for my well-being, either in healthcare or government or whatever the case is, based off of a symbol in that context. So, yeah, no, and I get that. I mean, I, I think about sort of when I was, you know, a, a kid or in college. You know, you know, I wanted the clothes with the you know, the brand names or whatever on them, because I thought that would make me cool. Um, but once I kind of got over that, I'm not really sure how I got over that. Um, and maybe that's where some of these interventions could come into play. Um, you know, I'm now quite happy to to always buy my clothes at thrift stores, um, you know, no matter what. Um, uh, like, a, the, 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 like the only new clothes I buy are, you know, underwear um, and, uh, and maybe socks. Um, um, because, you know, it, it, I, it, I know now that it, it doesn't really change who I am as a person, you know, beyond, you know, um, whether the clothes are maybe clean or dirty or whatever. Um, so it seems like there's been, you, you mentioned like the ear app and then, then there's the IAT and there's some other ones. And I, I know there's, I think Dr. Dr. Uh, I forget his name, the Irish fella. Um, um, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, has 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 sort of done some work in this area um and actually i had huda have on i had uh vic suarez on a while back and she was doing some work around kind of racial bias um using some of these tests um uh, and then sort of how to kind of intervene you know and then come you know some some suggestions on her to intervene rocco the same with kind of stigma so what I'm getting at is, is all all this sort of bias testing seems to tell us this stuff already. Like, why do we need RDT? Yeah, um, I think that that's where we can start to collaborate, I think, better 
hopefully with those approaches and fields and and already Mm. existing findings, because like you said, relational density theory and these contexts don't necessarily add more Mm. uh, or take away from what we already know. Um, We know bias exists. We know Mm -hmm. that there are systems set up to uh, disadvantage people and advantage people based Mm -hmm. off of uh, these like features, these physical features or stories or, or those things. I think the difference with relational density theory is not that it's supposed to act in opposition to the others. It's supposed mm. to help a co- combined resource or support system to, I guess, to showcase what that looks like. So there mm. um, right now um, it's hard to find um, or maybe explain what's going on um, with language. Mm. Um, in its current context, we, we see a lot of single subject research, for example, using, you know, just our traditional graphing, mm. where this geospace offers a visual analysis for that. Um, and it, it provides an explanatory analysis for that. Um, mm. so we can see where exactly can we pinpoint intervention or where exactly can we pinpoint conversation? So, um, for example, um, those stereotypes that hold stronger relations, but maybe there's a little bit of a gap, um, just a a more gap between fickle and fussy than there is uh, emotional and fussy or something Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. That's where we can start to maybe look at inserting ourselves and the approaches that are widely known um, or have already been addressed by theorists and psychologists and behavior analysts and alike and and start to pinpoint in the center spots with where there's a little bit more wiggle room. Gotcha. Uh, because once we hit that, um, the assumption, hopefully, that relational density is taking is that we hit that um, almost like soft spot um, with something successful. And that relational class and network begins to expand everywhere. Mm. I, um like now I'm seeing the world in a much more flexible way. And I'm not looking at, I'm I'm looking at those features that make somebody a person. Mm. Um, and I'm able to acknowledge that they're a human. Um, but my biases maybe towards them are not, they're no longer as explicit or they're mm-hmm. no longer as um, prominent because I'm looking at everything else associated with that too. I like your story and mm-hmm. what you added to my life and your experiences and, and what makes you human. And I think that's where relational density theory. So that I, to me, that twofold one, the visual analysis and two, where we can pinpoint almost exactly, hopefully, that soft spot mm-hmm. to disperse all of those other stereotypes. I want to go back kind of to the base, the, the foundational stuff, because I think something for folks and something that I keep forgetting um, that might just be helpful to sort of elaborate on a bit is is that this, this RFT is essentially a uh, a a theory related to language and speaking and, and, and as, you know, as behavior analysts kind of call it verbal behavior. Um, um, And, and, and it's the idea that, that essentially all these isms, all these biases, all of these sort of, um, you know, connections we make to things are just based on, vocal noises that we make 
you know, using our larynx and our, you know, and our mouth and our tongue and our throat to kind of try, try to sort of, I don't know, it's hard to sort of describe language without using language, right? So, but to sort of, you know, um, um, organize in our minds, categorize in our minds what's happening in the world. Um, um, and I know Jordan, when he's off, when he talks about RDT, he'll often um, use the the uh, the alien. You're, you're an alien on another planet example, and you've come to another planet. You haven't learned anything about that planet or the people that live or the you know the the whatever's on that planet. But yet, right away, you'll start to create associations and categories in your mind. You'll start to go well. That looks like it could be a building, and that looks like it could be a, a being, and that looks like it could be land, and and no one's ever told us that's land, but because we've been taught to believe that flat structures with things growing out of them um, are, are are generally land on a, on in, in, in on our planet, that it's probably land on another planet, and we start to slowly sort of create these things, and and you know, and if we could kind of get in there early. And intervene, then maybe we wouldn't paint these aliens as invaders out to kill us, um, you know, uh, because that's what you know the media has shaped in, in language in our in our minds um, um, is kind of what's going on. And so this is all just about sort of how we, you know, think in our head, how we speak in our head about things, you know, these constructs that that don't even exist. Like gender, I know, like gender, for example, gender isn't, you know. Well, they're all gender, class, racism, race. They're all constructs. They're not things that actually exist. They're just things that have been formed as a result of us applying words to those things and then categorizing those words in, you know, in different groups and whatever. And so this is all about sort of changing the way we think about things and changing our internal verbal behavior and our external verbal behavior. Um, um, to sort of describe these situations. Is that essentially what we're trying to do? Exactly. I think so. I think that's the the goal. Um, and that's starting to um, be examined more within that institution I was telling you about, mm. um, both in Dana's research um, with um, uh, VBSM, I'm trying to remember, verbal behavior, self, or yes, values-based self-management, not yep, 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 yep. self-management, um, where she's trying to start to look at those like soft spots, like I was talking about. And then, mm. yeah, RDT being the way that that can be conceptualized and, and looked at and experimentally. And so already, so now, so with RDT, RDT builds on the implicit stuff. So implicit stuff just gives us sort of, um, you know, like I think if you do like I don't know if it's the IAT or the IRAP, but there's one of those online ones, and it'll basically you you know you I, I did one of these before, and in the end it said you know Ben you are slightly biased towards you know white people. You think white people basically I I you know in, implicitly uh, my mind thinks believes or not believes, but I, but I don't know what it is, but I, I associate white people with being slightly better than black people when I do this test uh, in, in, in whatever way based on that. And, and the test is quick. Like it's, it's so fast when you go through it. Like you have no idea that like you, you have no idea that even they're measuring like the delay in, in you pressing that key sometimes I think. 
and whatnot. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if there's like a three second delay, that, that means, you know, that could mean something versus a two second delay and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and it gives you, it, it, but it basically pumps out this sort of sentence that describes you. RDT now go, takes that further because it now gives you a visual of, of all those different sorts of, um, you know, bias terms that we have in our head um, and, and now, and tells you sort of, you know, and without sort of getting into the stats of it all, it tells you basically how tightly connected those are. And if they're really tight, it's going to be really hard for us to, 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 to kind of pull those apart. And, and, and again, I think Jordan in one of the videos talks about, I think the video was around the time of, you know, I think maybe the, the first or second U uh, S election with Trump and, uh, and how, you know, the, the, the two, the, and, and just sort of the current state, I think, in the U.S. of sort of, 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 of sort of the 50-50 of, of, you know, for and against all these different areas now. And, and, and neither side um, can be convinced otherwise, um, even when given, you know, factual information. So like the one side just says, just takes your information and says it's fake. Um, you know, everything you say is a lie, so it doesn't matter. And it, and it just proves our point that you're all liars. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and then the others and, and what well, the other side is saying, you know, the, the same thing. And so there's, there's no way to sort of, um, um, kind of, kind of break that stuff apart. Um, so if you, I guess what I'm wondering is, is you haven't done this research yet, but what, what are, what, what are some ideas of interventions you think that that you might want to be looking at to drive from all this research? Like what, what, what could you be doing to sort of maybe solve some of these problems? Yeah, definitely. I think that I'm probably biased towards um, my lab and the research that we do and the yeah. application um, and processes that we use, as well as, of course, other behavior analysts that kind of think in that same streamline. Mm. Um, and so I want to at least acknowledge that before I respond, but I yeah. do think um, acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training is is a huge and vital a part of that. Those mm. um, six core processes um, are really important, um, and those are values, um, present moment awareness, uh, self as context, diffusion, committed actions, and I might be missing one. That's okay. But yes, point being is that um, those are really vital, I think, in my perspective to um, allowing for flexibility in somebody's responses to these sort of biases that are normal. Um, it, it makes sense for us to um, come into contact with person and kind of look at them and see what they look like and mm -hmm. make assumptions based off of those things. Um, and whether we have maybe good interactions or bad interactions with people who were wearing an orange shirt, for example, you know, mm -hmm. beforehand might skew that. So I think mm -hmm. it makes sense to um, acknowledge those, oh, acceptance, um, as, um, accept that that is kind of where we go based off of our, our history. Mm. Um, but then to diffuse from that and to separate ourselves from that and, and recognize that maybe we value connectedness. Um, and so why does it matter what that connection looks like? There's a couple reasons. One, because identity matters. Um, and, it makes people feel good to to join a group that 
they have people that have lived a similar experience or look a certain way or mm. uh, talk similarly to them. But beyond that, um, it also feels good to learn different perspectives um, and, and surround ourselves with people who don't share those same experiences as us. Um or similar, not same, I guess, mm. but similar experiences as us, because that's valuable too. And that can foster connectedness, again, being the value, I guess, if that's an example. So I do think that. Um, and then I don't um, have a lot of information or know a lot of um, that values-based self-management just yet mm. um, coming out of Dr. P's lab, but um, or her, her focus within the lab, I guess, that we're starting up. But she um, is... I think published a paper or recently, or is a, a has been accepted um, with a paper mm. on that. So I highly suggest that because I think that that's also it too. Um, a lot of the time we get pushback from other fields saying acceptance and commitment therapy isn't or training isn't behavior analytic enough, which I could go on about. Sure. <laughs> but self management is um, very behavior analytic, and while those both are very similar. Um, sometimes verbiage matters as we're talking about. And within that, they're targeting very similar core processes um, from ACT Mm -hmm. and intervening in a self-management approach. I want to uh, be successful at X, so I need Mm -hmm. to do Y. Um, So I think those two, at least right now, are really really helpful. And then also just exposure to other people, like getting out there from a non-research perspective, mm-hmm, I guess, mm-hmm. setting, I guess, just to experience other people's stories and be present with them and, and hear what they have to say and um, validate those experiences because it feels, I don't know that, I mean, just that own personal growth, but getting yourself into an uncomfortable, what you would see as uncomfortable situation for the, um, benefit of learning and experiencing the human connection, I think is really important too. And people sometimes shy away from that for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, this stuff, uh, this stuff, I mean, just thinking about sort of how tightly some of these things are connected. Um, Like, would, 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 do you think interventions would will be individual or will they be group? I mean, because these are, we're we're talking about sort of whole populations of people that sort of are feeling this way, mm-hmm. um, and you know, uh, is is it, it? It just it just seems so out there, right? Yeah, I don't know if I have a solid answer for yeah. you. I think that there's two parts to that answer potentially. Yeah. One of lived and shared experience and listening to the people who have experienced this stuff, mm. what is best for their communities. Um and hearing that perspective, I think is a huge part of how we can do that um, mm. and approach that. And then beyond that, that scientific approach where as like I said before, I don't experience racism or classism mm. like about but from a scientific standpoint um there is empirically backed work both at an individual level and group levels mm. um, and i don't know which one right now is more valuable um to oh, I'm, I'm pro- probably both both are yeah. needed i think yeah um, um and I also 
Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I know that um, in terms of like relational density theory, you can um, almost give yourself this multidimensional scale of bias and whatever and find mm. out and determine your own. So this, the studies, at least from an experimental standpoint, it can be an, yourself within or showing up in that geospace. Mm. Um, and it can also be groups where in this case is 106 participants, for example, can also create that geospace. So I do know from that point of view, you can do both. And again, mm. pinpoint maybe where those spots are to intervene. Gotcha. So you might be able to, you know, look at the self in this and, and look and think about individual interventions, but then look at a mass group and look at how, you, you know, and then and then really then you're just sort of trying different things to, to see kind of how they how how they sort of tweak. Um, and I, I also wonder, you know, I know that uh, Jordan and others have done a lot of things with peak, you know, as far as sort of early intervention stuff. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I was talking to my wife about this yesterday because we were talking about this um, this whole uh... The third secret word is Felix. Thing you and I were talking about before we hit record around how the stigma of diagnoses and how you know like so for me i have an adhd diagnosis and but then i've created sort of these connections in my mind about how how i behave and why i behave because of that diagnosis um and i didn't have those connections before someone gave me the diagnosis even though i was still the same person before and after the diagnosis i still had all the same symptoms of adhd uh but now that i have this diagnosis i'm now using it as an excuse sometimes for, you know, my behavior um, and, uh, and, and possibly not even thinking I need to change my behavior anymore or can change my behavior anymore because I now have, you know, kind of this label. And we were talking about kind of how a lot of that is, you know, how, how, how value would be for like young children to learn about sort of all these labels and diagnoses early on um not just for themselves but for sort of everyone around them and so that they can be sort of you know more you know i guess compassionate or understanding of kind of what's happening when they're introduced to these folks instead of being sort of you know you know you know instead of having you know i think again sort of these relational frames like if all i've ever seen for on an autistic individual is is someone you know who hits people and breaks things and, 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 you know, and, and lives in an institution, you know, then I'm going to sort of have this assumption that all those kids with autism sh are, are going to hurt me or could potentially hurt me or break my stuff um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I'm wondering, has there been conversation around, around that, around sort of, you know, what, because I feel like early intervention for all of the, all these isms is, is is kind of where it's at because then they don't have sort of their whole life of uh, of learning history that we're trying to break through. So have you, have you talked about that at all or thought about that at all? 
Yeah, we've definitely thought about it and had conversation about it. I think you hit something really important where you said um, it's easy then to generalize that all people, all autistic people are going to break my things and things. And so that's where Mm. that coherence comes in. I hear one piece of information that already um, is the same as my other biases, Mm -hmm. but I didn't think about that part about you're breaking my stuff. But now that's easily just sucked into that class. Just so easily. And then you can see that just get bigger and bigger and, and denser and, and all mm-hmm. those things. Whereas it's harder to do that um, uh, with things that aren't coherent or incoherent. Um, I could tell you that that autistic person that breaks others things and, and all that stuff is also a loving mother who mm-hmm. um, has a really successful career and, and things like that, that are very real um, for people and, and happen and, are existing, you know? And so that, um, but that doesn't matter. My negative mm-hmm. stereotypes might hold so strong that even you're giving me this incoherent information, although true is not going to disrupt that frame. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to insert that information. Um, but yeah, we've definitely talked about how to intervene. I think that there's a, a lot of utility in doing both children and adults, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't, I couldn't tell you which one is, is better or worse. There's yeah, yeah. piece to both because in a lot of ways you have to be able to, if we're talking about peak, for example, um, equivalence, um, as being one of those, um, key components to language. Um, so that's where you start to, um, kind of complexify your language. You're able to generalize to different contexts to be a little bit more creative and, and those kinds of things. And you're responding. And if a, a child or, or somebody else, an adult doesn't have that skill set, it might be a little bit more difficult to provide some sort of intervention, um, because the language isn't complex enough hmm. to both describe that, um, uh, or give that information or to be able to receive that information. So I know that that um, might be something to consider as well, more so than maybe not more so, but as well as the age of the person. Mm-hmm. But I th- I agree with you. I think um, putting it all out there beforehand. So there's a little bit of detachment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you don't have to, you can, I think the choice in identifying yourself with, your symptoms or your diagnoses or your uh, appearance or culture, that identity matters. Mm -hmm. And the option of being able to identify with that, um, there's a lot of strength in that. Mm -hmm. And then there's also um, the flip side, if people don't want to identify with that or that causes them harm. um, I know we were talking briefly about the, um, I think it was before we recorded the little girl with autism who Mm -hmm kind of was told the story of you're autistic and um, you're going to have challenges and face barriers. And here's a list of yeah. ways that might occur while that was beneficial. I think it well-intended um, it, it started to cause her to perceive herself as um, let's say her name is um, like Sarah, autistic Sarah, mm. you know, and it wasn't just Sarah um, who has autism and who experiences different things. Um, but also within, I don't know, I could probably go on and on, but I do think that mm-hmm. identity matters if you choose to identify with it. Yeah. If you don't choose to let that be yourself or your identification, which is equally valid, that's okay too. Um, and I think that's where the individual gets to decide that. 
don't know. Yeah. I was thinking also about sort of the the point around um this is this 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 is could be another tangent, but the point around uh you know the behavior analysis field not accepting that some of this stuff is behavior analysis. Um and I feel like this is also you know RFT at work you know an RDT at work because we've we've sort of created these sort of rules about what behavior analysis should be like one 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 thing i struggle with and and i know folks will some folks will will not want to hear this but um is is uh is the idea that you know bf skinner Created behavior analysis, and 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 therefore, you know, kind of everything he says is 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 sort of gospel, you know. Um, and even though a lot of the stuff he's 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 written about was just his own theories about what you know how the world should work and what behavior is like and whatnot. Obviously, he did science experiments and stuff, um, you know, after that. But there's lots lots of lots of his writings aren't necessarily based on experiments he did in the lab. But based on you know behaviorism and his philosophy and how he thinks things should be, and you know old school and even and new school alike behavior analysts take that word to be you know what he says is behavior analysis, mm -hmm. uh, but there's no reason for what he says to be behavior analysis beyond that was his philosophy and that's what thing this this thing is kind of all built around um you know i i don't hear a lot about sort of in other fields about you know the originator of that field and therefore being the you know sort of the the you know the source of all information related to that and so i feel like there there's like our field already has some embedded biases kind of in that way uh, about sort of of sort of what our field should be and and the should be doesn't seem to be necessarily something that's based on science or research but based on kind of kind of philosophy and so yeah i'm wondering well a you know have you thought about looking at sort of perceptions of behavior analysis through kind of that rdt lens uh but also What do you sort of say to the behavior analyst that's listening when they're being told from, you know, by their their mentors and, and the people they look up to and the people that, you know, have written a lot in the field that what they're doing could might not be in their scope? Yeah. Um, to answer that first question, I think, um, okay, I don't think we have looked at that aside mm. from Claire's study uh, right. on ableism right. and perspectives of um, autistic people. Um, so I think that was the only one, but I, enough, I, yeah. that's a phenomenal, um, approach. Cause you're right. We, we tend to get stuck and then also preach to not be stuck. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I totally agree with you in that, uh, respect. So if I had to say something to a behavior analyst or anybody who's studying that, um, I think at least what I've done is determined what matters to me, um, and what I mean by that is I think that there is value in supporting people through their journey, um, and 
whether that be because somebody has a mental health diagnosis or an autism diagnosis or um, whatever it is, a disability status of some kind uh, Hmm. or something that they're struggling with and they've identified as a barrier for them, um, be creative in your approach with that and allow yourself to sit with that experience um, and knowledge of that. And if your value and you care about um, supporting that growth or whatever they're telling you they need, um, use the principles of behavior analysis. I think that those core principles are important. Um, reinforcing behaviors that matter and that already are working for that person. Um, and then um, self-management, for example, um, write yourself a to-do list or some committed actions, for example, to get you closer to something that you care about. Um, so I think that behavior analysis does have a unique skill set in that. And th- those processes, at least, are empirically backed um, to some extent and have worked. And I think that that's the uniqueness of behavior analysis is that we're able to showcase that. Um, so beyond all of, I guess, the the theories and philosophies, the processes most of them work. Um, and then just taking that and also acknowledging, I guess, on the flip side of that, which processes don't work or which ones are harmful to certain communities is also a huge thing um, that behavior analysts tend to get stuck in and feel like escape extinction, for example. I don't, I personally do not like that for a lot of different reasons. Um, and that's a principle that I think people need to budge on because there's a whole community coming forward and, and saying this doesn't work. This is extremely harmful to my well-being um, and those kinds of things. And just being able to adapt to that change um, as the fields progress. I think with escape extinction, I think the problem is, is that it does work. Um, um, well, and and yeah. this is sort of the problem with behavior and one of the problems with behavior analysis is it's it is is I mean, I mean we're kind of getting into sort of a different area here, but this is sort of where you know the, the folks have you know, I think a lot of the, the ableism conversations and sort of the anti ABA ABA is abuse sort of you know sort of groups are kind of having these conversations in that. You know, behavior analysis in and of itself is not good or bad, uh, but it can be used for good or bad, um, right. you know, whatever bad, good or bad means. But, um, uh, you know, it can be it can be used for evil, you know. And so, um, you know, I can because it can work because there are methods, there are effective methods in behavior analysis to change almost any behavior to anything you want um but that doesn't mean you should um and it doesn't mean and it doesn't mean there are no sort of side effects to doing that and so we can we can totally you know um i mean we've seen this with sort of the contingent electric shock research i mean you know the research itself shows that you know the, the the passing of electrical current into someone's skin will change their behavior, and I think that's pretty clear. I think it would change my behavior if you started yeah, zapping I me, or, you know, yeah, can... yeah, exactly. Or if you were just to you know punch me in the head every time you know I, I, I engage in a behavior you didn't want me to, I probably I probably would stop. Um, but you know that doesn't mean you should be punching me in the head or zapping me or or any other sort of or or you know forcing the spoon down a food down my throat or or whatever, um, just because you can and just because it works. Um, um, because it works is also verbal behavior. I mean, it. W- what do we mean by it works? Yeah, the behavior changes, but 
they're now traumatized. They now have an eating disorder. They now, you know, they're, you know, it, the long, the long-term effects that we don't measure in our research because we don't, in ABA research, we generally don't look past six months or a year. Uh, we don't look at side effects of, uh, of things. We don't, you know, we don't look at sort of, you know, what percentage of, you know, kids who were in, you know, EIBI in, in the 80s are now, you know, receiving, you know, therapy and have, you know, PTSD diagnoses or whatever. We, we don't know any of that stuff um, 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 because we never, we've, we've never kind of bothered to look at any of that. So I, th I th you know, I, I think this kind of goes back to the fact that everyone uses verbal behavior for everything. Um, especially people and, and behavior analysis are not sort of, you know, uh, an exception to that. And so when behavior analysts start saying, you know, you can't do this or you shouldn't do this or, or that doesn't work. Is that th that seems to all be based on a bias as well. Um, and so it'd be really interesting from from in, in the RDT lens to sort of go, you know, to, to sort of see, you know, how tightly wound some of those things are. Um, uh, because I would, I, I think, I think people would be, uh, would, would be surprised to find out how much bias plays into, you know, their objective descriptions of things. No, definitely. I really like that idea. I'll probably be sending you an email about it yeah. in the future to see if we can kind of, um, weed out some of that stuff, but really yeah. interesting. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's really cool stuff. Um, I, you know, again, I think maybe, maybe once I get to sort of, Hub episode 10, I'll stop asking for an introductory explanation of RDT and RFT. But I'm uh Lauren, if you're listening, uh, I'm probably gonna ask you the same questions I asked uh, I asked Alana uh, around that. So feel free to come up with a uh a, a new way to describe things. Uh it is thick and and I think I I get it, I get it from sort of the visual perspective, but um you know, when you're learning about RDT as a student in these programs, as you know, as one of Jordan and you know Dana's students, um, do you find it's helpful that that they're using all these physics terms? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, put simply, that was. I mean, I could not tell you the complex definitions or. Yeah. Any um, do I think it's important? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I think that it it aids in the explanation um behind the like beyond behavior analysis yeah. and how this all works and and all that stuff. But in terms of learning it, no, it's not digestible in that yeah. city. Um, but I think that that's where these studies that are coming out now from the lab, those more like real world applications, that's yeah. hopefully where people can get drawn in. Um and join us in the the geeking out process of yeah. diving into those you know different behavior momentum theories and mm -hmm. uh, physics and all of that stuff that yeah. I wouldn't have looked into if it weren't for the need for um, for me for addressing or understanding these like social constructs. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Okay, well now now you're at uh, the Chicago School working on your PhD. What's uh, what's uh, what are some of the projects you got going on? Yeah, so um, like I said, I'm in Blend Lab with um, Rock, Dr. Rocco Catroni and some really amazing researchers there. Um, 
We are working on a couple different studies, probably the one that I am the most passionate about um, is the acceptance and commitment therapy or training um, study for caregivers um, with children on the autistic spectrum. Um, I think that that is something that I'm really excited about. We haven't really started that. We have the IRB and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but beyond that, I, I'm excited and willing to support um, in that space. And I think the key word there is support, not save in that space. Mm. Um, like, or try and go in there and intervene on their experiences because I don't have those experiences. But again, from a uh, maybe a professional standpoint or just a person who cares, hopefully we can um, begin to unravel maybe those, their, maybe their own biases or their own stigmas or or stories that they're coming to. Like my kid went to school and was told this by a bully and now they think this about themselves and, and trying to unravel that stuff. So we're a lot more application-based in the blend lab, at least from the side of stuff that I'm doing. Um, we're also working with a school in Italy, I believe. Um, yes. And, um, we're going to go visit there in 2024, fingers crossed that that trip, um, remains in the books. So, um, that will be really cool too, just so we can extend our knowledge on, um, how behavior analysis or alike, I guess, um, something similar to behavior analysis, depending on what they, you know, reference it as or the processes that they use, but what that can bring back to the states and other things, those perspectives of how do they approach certain behaviors and what excites them about behavior analysis and things like that. But yeah, those are the two things that I think I'm the most excited for in the future. Right on. Uh, well, I think before we close, I think it, it, it might be helpful for, uh, uh, you to introduce uh, the other guest that's been on on the podcast for this whole show. What what's uh, what what is the name of your cat? His name is Jojo, and he is locked away in a room. He's just very loud. I can hear him. He's because he sounds. I, I keep thinking he's my cat Felix because my cat Felix oh. makes the same sound over and over again um, uh, when when he's locked in a room. Uh, anyway, so it, it's been it's been enjoyable listening to Jojo in the <laughs> good, background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got some good stuff to add. Yeah, absolutely. Right on. Cool. Good. Well, a lot of other really really interesting stuff. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun, and it's pushed my boundaries. I can tell you that in terms of like how to explain this stuff, that yeah. has been a, a ride in itself. So thank you for giving me that experience. No worries.